We turn to 1 Peter for our scripture reading this evening, the book of 1 Peter. And we read chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. Our text is taken from verses 6 and 7 of the chapter. We hear the inspired word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, 
who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, our text is taken from verses 6 and 7. Wherefore ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Peter addresses us in this chapter to the glorious hope that we have as God's children. We've been made strangers and pilgrims in the midst of this world. And as those who are strangers and pilgrims called to live now as citizens of the kingdom of heaven here below, we await a glorious inheritance. And the Apostle spoke of that. That God has chosen us from eternity according to the sovereign decree of election unto an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, verse 4, who are kept by God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. God is giving to us to know this wonder. And he has this glorious inheritance for us, and he's keeping us unto the enjoyment of it. Now this hope, this joy, seems dimmed by all the struggles and the difficulties that we experience here below. Cancer, loss of jobs, loss of loved ones, sometimes a young husband, a young wife taken from their family, all kinds of trials and afflictions that take place here in the midst of this world. And as these troubles and as these afflictions confront us, sometimes we wonder, where is the joy? Where is the happiness? Where is that exceeding great joy that is ours in Jesus Christ? Now the saints rejoiced greatly in this hope even though they were in the midst of persecution. And that's the marvelous work that we see being spoken of here. Rejoicing in heaviness. The subject of persecution was looming hard for these saints. And as they were being scattered out of Jerusalem, Nero had taken to the throne. And you children are aware of wicked Nero. Wicked Nero hated the Christians. And he sought to bring about tremendous persecution upon the people of God. A persecution that lasted all the way till the time of Constantine in AD 313. A persecution that resulted in Christians being thrown in arenas, wild animals tearing them apart, 
Christians being burned at the stake. It was difficult being a Christian in these days. And to be a Christian meant that you were going to be opposed and you were going to probably have to give your life for the sake of your confession. Peter views these persecutions as in no way diminishing the joy of the child of God. Persecution is expected. It's necessary. It's a part of living as a pilgrim in the midst of this world. And we just think of the testimony of Scripture. Jesus told his disciples, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. John 16, verse 33. Paul stated, Ye must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Acts 14, verse 22. To Timothy, we remember the words that Paul wrote. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. The saints know that they're recipients of this glorious hope. But until they receive the fullness of it, they're in the midst of this world, in the midst of tremendous temptation and trials. And so the apostle here is contrasting two things. The state of Christians now in the present, when Christ is not bodily present with them, he's present by his spirit, but he's in heaven, and then the experience of the Christians when Christ comes back again, and when he takes them into the fullness of the glory of that heavenly inheritance. What must be our attitude now as we're in the midst of this world and as the trials and afflictions of life confront us? How must we be a witness to others concerning that hope? And Peter says these temptations, these trials are great heaviness. They produce manifold sorrows. In no way does he minimize the seriousness of them. However, in the midst of these sorrows, the child of God rejoices. He rejoices with a joy unspeakable. God is using those sorrows to direct us heavenward. He's using those sorrows to direct us to the hope that is ours in glory. And he's strengthening our faith in order that we might be found as those who have that approved faith of God's children. And so we look at this passage under the theme rejoicing in heaviness. Noting the meaning, noting the manner, and noting the purpose. Rejoicing here, in verse 6, greatly rejoice, refers to intense joy on account of the great hope that God has given to us. The word that's used for joy here is the strongest word that we find in the Bible for joy. And that's expressed with greatly rejoice. Where else do we find this word? We find this word, for instance, when the Virgin Mary was informed that she was going to be the mother of Jesus. There was a joy unspeakable that took hold of her, so that she greatly rejoiced, according to Luke 1, verse 47. This rejoicing of the people of God is a rejoicing due to the context here. The fact that Jehovah God has set his love upon me, as an everlasting love. And that this great God has chosen me to be his own. I'm not deserving. I've done nothing to make myself worthy. And yet, he set his love upon me. And he's preserving and keeping me 
unto the enjoyment of the fullness of this inheritance. This is a joy in knowing that Jehovah God is with me. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. And he's blessing me far above anything that I deserve. Exalting God with joy. That's literally the idea here. A joy not in self, but a joy in the wonders that God has performed for me in Jesus Christ. Now this joy is not limited then to some certain occasions of life. A birthday, an anniversary, a nice get-together where we celebrate a momentous occasion or event. Scripture calls us as believers to lives of constant joy and constant rejoicing. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, Rejoice evermore. Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. The idea being this, the child of God is a joyful individual. The child of God is one who knows the great wonder of God's grace and God's love. And lives constantly in the enjoyment of it. Wakes up in the morning and is reminded of what great things God has done. Throughout the course of the day, it keeps God ever before his face. And at night, looks back on the day with thankfulness. What great opportunities my God gave me. How good God was toward me. And ultimately rejoicing in the wonder of forgiveness. My sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't deny the fact that there's other emotions that also are present within the life of the child of God. Peter addresses then the saints as those who are presently, continuously rejoicing in the blessings of their salvation. And this rejoicing, we know then, is a wonder of God's grace. It's remarkable. How is it that these saints, in heaviness, scattered through Pontius, Galatia, These who are strangers and pilgrims, how is it that this joy characterizes their lives? Because Jehovah God has worked his spirit in their hearts. And by the power of that spirit, there is a great rejoicing. Now that joy is in the context of great heaviness. By stating that they're rejoicing, Peter is in no way minimizing the severe nature of their persecution and opposition. They're in heaviness. And the intention is to contrast these two words. So as exuberant as the joy, so the depths of the greatness of the heaviness. It's meant to be contrasted. And with the same intensity, although now sorrowing, sorrowing to the point that that sorrow is to the point of crushing one. It's so deep and so heavy. This is a word that's used throughout Scripture to refer to those in intense pain who are being pressured on every side to the point of being crushed. Now that heaviness we know comes from a number of different factors. First of all, it's a heaviness that's brought on by others. Others treat us poorly. They treat us bad. They may even persecute us. They mock us. They laugh at us. How much do we not suffer at the hands of others? And we know how intense that suffering is. But secondly, it comes from the heaviness that's caused by our own sin, our own indiscretions. We sin 
And as a result, there are dire consequences for our sin. And the consequences of those sins cause heaviness, intense heaviness in our lives. And finally, it comes from that which God sends directly from his hand. God is the one that makes us spiritual pilgrims here below. And God in his providence sends hardship, loss, affliction, troubles, reminding us your citizenship is not here below, but it's heavenly. It's from above. And God reminds us your home isn't here on earth. It's in heaven. The result then is great heaviness from all of these sources. Now this seems contradictory. How is it that we can rejoice greatly and yet be in great heaviness? Only a Christian is able to experience that wonder. And the scriptures here are getting at a marvelous work of grace that God performs in the hearts of his children. A child of God is able to rejoice in temptation. A child of God is able to be at peace with God's will and God's plan in his or her life. And that's a marvelous work of grace. It's the work of Christ within us. Jesus Christ could experience the intense joy of the resurrection only in the way of the deep sorrow of the garden. And you remember the sorrow that was so deep that droplets of blood came from his forehead. That sorrow, that intense sorrow, that intense struggle, at the same time, the joy of knowing that he was doing his father's will and he was pursuing the way that God had ordained for him. So that while deeply troubled, yet intensely joyful, Because the way that he was walking was the way his heavenly father had ordained for him to perform. And we can relate to that by God's grace. When someone dies whom we love dearly, there's deep sorrow. There's intense sorrow. There's a void there that God has placed now in our lives. And that sorrow continues for a long time. It's a constant reminder of that pain and that agony. But along with the intensity of that suffering, there is also the unspeakable joy that that loved one is with Jesus in heaven. And we don't want that loved one to come back. And so that there are those two emotions that are very intense in our lives. A deep sorrow, but also an unspeakable joy in the victory that God has given to our loved ones. The faithful children of God are not emotionless. They're touched by sorrow. They're afraid of danger. They're hurt by poverty. Personally, they're touched by the unbearable character of persecution. And they suffer sorrow as a result of their sin. But that sorrow does not prevent joy. That sorrow gives occasion to, and that sorrow directs us to a joy that is in Jesus Christ. That sorrow kindles and works a joy that directs us to God. The believer is weak, sinful, prone to temptation. At the same time, that believer is strong and victorious and more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. That's the wonder of the struggle between the old man and the new man that is in Jesus Christ. 
And as we experience life, we experience that intense battle and those strong emotions. But the believer knows the sorrow of this life cannot begin to compare to the glory that awaits. And God calls us to walk by faith, not by sight. And in this way, we rise above the trials. And we even see those trials as used by God as occasions for joy. And so the faithful child of God endures heaviness willingly. What happens with the ungodly? The wicked and ungodly, they strive against God. They hate God. And they refuse to accept their lot in life. And when hardship comes their way, they lash out at God. They rebel against God. They constantly are battling God's will in their lives. But the believer sees God's hand and submits. And the child of God acknowledges that God is the one. My heavenly Father is the one ordaining all this. And as a tame horse submits to saddle and bridle, the child of God submits to God's will. Now, it would be foolish for us to say that we enjoy it, we delight in it, but we submit to it humbly for God and for his glory. And the greatest desire of the child of God is to be conformed with the will of his heavenly Father. Not my will, thy will be done. I know, you know, I deserve everlasting wrath, everlasting punishment in hell. And yet Jehovah God has given me a joy that's unspeakable. And the sorrows and the challenges of this life can't begin to compare to what I deserve. I deserve something far greater. I deserve to perish everlastingly. And so that nothing I experience here below can compare to what I deserve. And Jehovah God will not give me what I deserve. He's done for me something that is marvelous. He has regenerated me. He has given me to know the wonder of election. And he has begotten me again to that lively hope unto that inheritance that's incorruptible. Now how is it that we experience this struggle? The Apostle says, in manifold temptations. And here it's important for us to understand what a temptation and a trial are. Both are being spoken of here in the text. In verse 6, we read of manifold temptations. Verse 7, that the trial of your faith. Now, first of all, it's important to note that the same word in the Greek is used both for trial or temptation. And so it's important in the context, then, to try to figure out what is being referenced. Now, what is a trial? What is a temptation? What is the difference between them? We must emphasize, first of all, that Jehovah God is sovereign over all trials and temptations. He is the one who controls everything that takes place as our Heavenly Father. At the same time, temptations are from the devil. And James 1, verse 13 is clear. God doesn't tempt. It's the devil who tempts. So temptations are from the devil, trials are from God. At the same time, God is sovereign over all, and at the same time, God uses the same circumstance to be both for the child of God. Temptations originate from the devil. They're motivated by hatred. 
The devil makes use of the lie. And the devil has his goal to deceive and to destroy. The devil wants everyone to suffer with him and to go to hell. And so he brings the lie. And he does so motivated with hatred and envy. Trials originate from God. They're in love. They're only directed to God's children. Temptations come to all men. Trials only to God's children. And God determines that those trials are means in love to build up and to strengthen his children. And so, we would say, again, the same event. Say God sends sickness. The devil tries to use that sickness as an occasion of a temptation. Deny God. Obviously, God doesn't love you. God hates you. And God is punishing you. Think of how the devil used sickness to confront Job. God sovereign over it all, and yet God giving to the devil the ability and the right to touch Job. God limiting it. But the devil brings sickness as a temptation. At the same time, God is bringing that sickness as a trial to test Job. How will Job respond? Will Job curse God and die? Or will Job demonstrate his faith and his strength? So that, for instance, for you children, maybe you're taking a test. And the temptation when you're taking that test, the devil tempts you now to look at your neighbor's paper. Just peek over there to see what answer they have so that you can steal their answer and use their answer. Don't do your own work, just cheat. So the devil is saying, just cheat. It's not a big deal. Just look at the paper. It's okay. Take their answers and make them your own. God is tempting you. God is testing you and God is watching over you. What will you do? Will you give in to the temptation or will you be faithful and do your own work? The same situation, both a trial and a temptation. God's sovereign over it all. And so as we're in the midst of this world, believers experience both temptations and trials. Temptations coming to all men, trials coming only to those who are the objects of God's love. And as these temptations and trials come upon us, they're intense. The devil is seeking to destroy us. He wants us all to go to hell with him, whereas God is using them to test us and to try us, that we might come forth as gold. Now, with regard to these temptations and trials, we read that these Temptations are manifold. Manifold includes every form imaginable to man. And through this epistle, we have a window into that. A mirror of the dark shadows that were coming upon the scattered saints. They were being buffeted for doing well. They were being reviled. They were suffering. They were exposed to railing and terror. Evil spoken of. We read of as of a fiery trial, that they were partakers of Christ's sufferings. They were reproached for the name of Christ. They tried to do what was right, and what happened to them? They suffered as a Christian. That is, according to chapter 4, verse 16, they lost their jobs, they lost their businesses, they lost their names, they lost their homes, they were deserted by their parents, forsaken by their children, friends forsook them, All kinds of misrepresentation came upon them, intense hatred, and even death. All of these was the experience of the people of God in the midst of this world. Manifold. Temptations on every side. 
from every account. So that the new convert became a target of the devil. And the devil brought every weapon at his disposal against that one. These temptations were real, and they resulted in tremendous loss. Loss of liberty, loss of freedom, imprisonment. And so specifically, the temptations on the foreground here are those that would entice us to be citizens of this world instead of citizens of God's kingdom. Temptations that would entice us to take the wide way, to compromise. Don't walk that narrow way that leads to glory. Tempted to live on the edge, to keep our feet in mammon and in the world. Temptations to live in the pursuit of the things that are earthly. Now we know that God is controlling all the temptations and all the trials. And that heaviness of temptation is modified in two different ways here in the context. First of all, in verse 6, the temptations are now for a season. That's beautiful. Now for a season. That is, God assures us here that these temptations, these trials, are limited as to their severity. They're not going to always be continuing forever. But that we are assured the heaviness, the suffering, is not only limited as to its time, but also it's limited as to its severity. And that becomes evident there. Now for a season. God is not always threshing. The end comes when we will reap the reward. Temptations, as severe as they may be, are yet limited by God as he knows precisely what we need and what is for our good. Again, think of Job. The devil wanted to come at Job, and God limited him. God said, no, you can't touch Job. And then God said, okay, you can touch Job, but you can't take his life. And so God is the one. Now for a season. Matthew 24 talks about the fact that God may even shorten the days of the end of time for the sake of his church and his people. Whatever that means, if he makes it so that the intensity of the persecution is over more quickly. But Jehovah God, ordaining all of temptation, all of the trials, with a purpose. And so the sorrow then that we experience, the heaviness, is not without hope. There's an end. And that's the point. It's leading to a glorious end, an end that Jehovah God has ordained. It's just for a season, as God has reserved for us this inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Wood, gold, silver will not outlast the forces of decay. The forces of decay will eventually take them all over. But there is that which God has placed in the heart of his children, which will endure forever. Nothing can destroy it. The afflictions of this life, the sorrows of death, nothing can outlast it. Because the eternal God has worked life, life in Jesus Christ in the hearts of his children. And that covenant life will be preserved to all eternity. And so our temptations are temporary in terms of the eternal covenant that God has given to us. But secondly, in verse 6, also, if need be. Again, beautiful. What does that mean? That means this. Every temptation and every trial 
is necessary. They're necessary for me and for you. They have a specific purpose. The phrase, if need be, is a conditional statement, but one in which the statement is assumed true. Temptations aren't random. They aren't by chance. They're from our Heavenly Father out of necessity. And even though the devil is tempting, God is overruling. God is controlling all the events in this world for the preservation of his children and for the glory of his name. God knows precisely how much we stand in need of. And he sends it our way for our good. Never will God send us temptations that are not necessary. Never will we endure trials that are not needed for our spiritual walk. God never allows his children to suffer needlessly. That's 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. God will give us that way out, and he will give it to us through Jesus Christ. There's nothing more difficult than having to suffer aimlessly. Having to suffer something that has no purpose. We chafe under that. When we understand that our suffering has a positive purpose, and that Jehovah God is working in every trial and temptation a positive result and fruit, then, beloved, a new interest comes in the midst of the monotony of earthly life. There's a purpose as God humbles us, God proves us, as God detaches us from the earthly, from the visible, and as God increasingly creates in us that eager desire for the realities that nothing can quench, that are eternal, everlasting. What does this mean? Very practically, this means then that we don't look at trials and temptations as punishments for the past. The punishment's been taken by Jesus Christ. Every trial, every temptation looks ahead. And it's not intended for punishment, but it's intended to make us partakers of the holiness that is in Jesus Christ and the glory that awaits. It's working in us the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The very fact that it's a trial means... That we are of value. There's something precious that has to be worked with. The caretaker of a vineyard doesn't take up pruning for the branches of the thorn trees. He takes up pruning for the branches of the grapevines. And why? Because he desires that they bring forth more fruit. And so it is with Almighty God. What is so precious? Jehovah God has placed his life in our hearts, and therefore we are precious in his eyes. And so the apostle here is admonishing, don't focus on what people are doing to you. Don't focus on what people are doing against you. Instead, focus on what Jehovah God has done for you. Focus on what Jehovah God has done in you. He's taken you and he's made you precious in his sight. So precious that now he's working on you. He's 
perfecting you. He's causing you to experience these trials and these afflictions in order to bring forth more fruit for his glory and for his honor. And he's doing it in love for you. That's why he takes such pains, because he's preparing you for a service that can only be attained through these pains, through this suffering, and through this refining fire. In God's sovereignty, we find our comfort. Now this is a trial of faith, we read in verse 7. The word translated trial there has a slightly different meaning than our translation gives it. The idea is the tried character of our faith. So that it's referring to the finished product. It's referring to the faith after it's been tested and after it's been proven. The reference to gold confirms that. Gold is the end result of the refining process. And so the faith is compared here to gold. Gold is the finished product after much purification. And elsewhere, the word is translated experience. So that it refers to our faith, our experience, after having been tested. The idea being that God tests one. And the result of that testing is that God causes that one's faith to be revealed as true, as sincere. Think of Abraham. We read that God tested Abraham's faith and that he found it approved, according to Hebrews 11, verse 17. That's the idea here. So also, our faith is constantly being tested and being found approved or not approved. Now, the reference to faith here is the act of believing of the child of God, which is a gift, which is the fruit of faith. Important it is that when we talk about faith, we understand that we can be talking about three different things. And so we have to be clear and precise. When we talk about faith, first of all, we talk about the bond, the gift of God, the bond that unites us to Christ. And so faith is a bond. And as such, the Heidelberg Catechism talks about that. In Lord's Day 7, engrafted into Christ. It's a gift from God by which we're bound to Christ. Secondly, we talk about faith in terms of its object. What is the object of faith? The object of faith is God's word. So that we talk about faith in terms of that which is God's promises, God's word. We talk about the faith of our fathers. That's talking about the object of their faith. The word of God, which is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And then thirdly, we talk about faith in terms of the activity of that bond. The fact that we're united to Christ results in activity. And the Heidelberg Catechism, again, in Lord's Day 7, brings that out. That there's a confidence and there's a knowledge that flows out of it. Now, when we talk about those three aspects of faith, we understand the bond never changes. God gives the gift of faith. And that gift is the same from the very beginning to the end. The object of faith never changes. It's always the word of God and the promises of God. The activity of our faith, however, fluctuates. And so when we talk about the fact that faith can be weak or faith is strong or to strengthen our faith, we're talking there about the activity of that faith. As that activity flows out of that bond, 
That activity of faith would be our believing, our assent to the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. The living power within us by which we lay hold on God and on his word and on his will as our own. And we put our confidence in him. Now that fluctuates. There are times when that faith is strong. Other times when that faith is faltering. Other times when doubts and fears get the best of us. The temptations that we confront are constantly testing that faith. And they test our commitment. Are we living unto Christ? Are we leading godly lives? Gold, when it's purified, is tried twice by fire. First it's tried when it's separated from the draw so that the ore is placed in the refinery and it's separated. And then secondly it's tried when there's a judgment made concerning its purity. That's the idea here. Thou art a God who has proved us, we read in Psalm 66, verse 10. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. And our faith is tried in those two ways. First, we're constantly being separated from the evils of this world. God is testing us in that regard, in the refinery, causing us more and more to live unto him and to look to him and to trust in him and to lean on him. And then finally... There is that final end result, the testimony that Jehovah God has established a faith that is true. It's not a counterfeit faith. It's a sincere, true faith. The idea here is that Jehovah God is testing and trying us unto the perfecting of that faith, that that faith might be demonstrated as sincere and true. When a person of the world faces temptations and trials, what do they do? If they're an unbeliever, they face only temptations. And those temptations result in their running away from God, fleeing that is right. Exposing the fact that perhaps they may have made a confession of faith, but it was not sincere. It was not true. Whereas the child of God is drawn to God, clings to God, reaches out to him. And lives then in the conscious wonder of God's goodness. And that faith then becomes evident as that which is true. That which is proved. Now the text goes on. Found unto praise and honor and glory. That is, Jehovah God works a product that is more precious than gold. Now we know that the activity or faith of ourselves has no value. It must be refined. It must be purified. And God is the one who, according to his blessing then, causes that faith to be revealed as that which is true, that which is sincere. Jesus Christ, by means of his spirit, is at work in our hearts and in our lives, perfecting, molding the sinner so that the sinner puts his or her trust in Jehovah, leans on Jehovah. And as That work of sanctification is taking place throughout our lives as God is separating us from sin, exposing that sin in our lives, working repentance and true sorrow in our lives. God is causing a marvelous fruit to become more and more evident so that that one gives evidence that he or she is walking according to faith, a faith 
that is tested and true and real. And so you who have experienced trials and persecutions and temptations have something more precious than gold. This is a wonder of God. It's nothing of ourselves. This is the work of Jehovah God. You who have suffered pain and anguish of the loss of loved ones, you have been mocked and ridiculed from fellow workers because of your faith. Perhaps you've had to give up a job because of your faith. Maybe relationships had to be broken up because of your commitment to Christ. You who are living in the midst of this world as pilgrims and strangers, knowing that your life is hid in God, in Jesus Christ, you have something that is more precious than gold, more precious than anything the world has to offer. You have a faith that's being tried and tested and approved by God, a faith that is growing and developing in your knowledge and in your commitment to Jehovah God. Gold will pass away at the end of the world, but that faith in Jesus Christ will endure to all eternity. This is the marvelous work of Jehovah God, that our approved faith may be unto the praise and honor and glory of God. What a wonder that Jehovah God would take me. And I know my faith is weak. I know how it falters, so frail at times. That faith that's often like Peter's, quick to deny Jesus, even when there's nothing at stake. That faith, so insignificant at times in our lives, that Jehovah God is working. He's strengthening. Not our work. This is a wonder of God. And as God works this strengthening, and as he works this wonder work, our trials, though they seem so full of shame, though they seem so filled with reproach and suffering, become glorious in Jesus Christ. They will be to the glory and honor of God because this is God's power that's operating in our lives. Jehovah God is preserving and keeping his own unto that glory that awaits. And we rejoice then with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Our joy and heaviness then coming from especially two things. First, we understand the nature and the meaning of our trials. Jehovah God, in his fatherly love, holds us in his hand. And he's ordaining all of it for our good. And secondly, Jehovah God is the one that's working love and faith in him through those trials. So that the joys of this life are increasingly taken from us. And as we lose the strength and the ability to pursue the things that previously meant so much to us, God is increasingly driving us to see Christ is my all in all. My joy and my hope is found in him. He is our eternal inheritance. Our faith will be revealed for the glory of God and for his honor in the day of Christ's appearing. That's the confession here that the apostle makes. Christ will be manifest in that last day, and the faith of men will be put to the final test to determine, is it counterfeit or is it true? And God's children will be revealed as those whose faith is true, whose faith is sincere, 
Because Jehovah God is the one whose work will be perfected. He who begun a good work in us will bring it to the end that he has determined. As painful as it is. And we will receive that everlasting crown that fades not, declared righteous forever in Jesus Christ. Heaviness. But in the midst of this heaviness, beloved, greatly rejoicing in the glorious hope that is ours. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, strengthen us in the midst of our trials and afflictions. Cause that as the heaviness and as the weight of that affliction lays upon us, that we might look to thee and that we might know the wonder of thy grace by which thou dost not only enable us to see thy hand and thy purpose, but also to rejoice and to give thanks for the precious nature and character of the faith that thou hast gifted to us and which thou art perfecting in us. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.